C.S. Lewis is using this story to teach profound biblical truth. You see, God created the world by speaking through the power of his word. And we are created to then respond back to him. We have been created to, to sing back to the creator with our very lives. And so your life and my life has been designed by the creator to be a beautiful song that displays the glory and majesty of God. You and I have been made to worship. Today we're continuing in our series here in December, a series called Christmas Song. Tune your heart to Jesus this Christmas. See, we all live in a world that is marked by stress, a world that's marked by uncertainty and insecurity. And that is prominent in Abu Dhabi, where insecurity is, is the word that all of us have to live with, with uncertainty. But it goes even beyond that. The whole world is marked by things like disappointment and even disease and pain. This is our human experience. Things don't always turn out the way we had hoped or desired. And due to life and all the realities that is life, sometimes our hearts get out of tune with Jesus. And so what is the result? We don't live lives that are singing a song of praise to God. Our, our hearts and lives begin to slowly drift away from the God that we love. And it can happen very easily. I was talking to someone just last week, and this person was sharing with brokenness on how far they had, had been from God. And, and so the person said, how did it happen? And I said, well, not overnight. It didn't happen overnight. It started with the slow drifting away from God. But then you wake up one day and you're like, whoa, God is so far away. It can happen. So we want to have our hearts really tuned to Jesus. And my prayer through this, this series here in December has been that, that we would feed our souls from Luke 1 and 2 and look at these beautiful songs, these poems that are in Luke 1 and 2. And my, my prayer has been that you will see, that you will see the glory of God and that you will personally encounter him because he calls us deeper still. May we truly encounter in a new, deeper, more profound way experiencing God himself because when you are experiencing him, that is fuel to worship him. So throughout this series, we're looking at four songs. Again, four poems. Last week, we looked at the Magnificat, the Song of Mary. Today, we're looking at the Benedictus, the Song of Zechariah. Now, before we read in Luke 1, the Song of Zechariah, verse 67, let me give you the brief context so that you know what's been happening earlier in Luke 1, if you haven't read that in a while. See, the beginning of Luke chapter 1 tells us that Zechariah was a priest and that he was a godly man. The text says that he walked blamelessly before God. And so he and his wife Elizabeth were never able to have children. She was barren. And when the story picks up with Luke 1, 
It's been many years. The, the text says they were advanced in years. Now, that's just a really nice way to say they were old. Now, we've talked in the past about Abu Dhabi and this experience that people here really aren't old. No one is old here because after 60, you can't hardly get a visa. And so consequently, and so if you're over, I don't know, 45, like we talked in the past, you're officially an old person, and so we need your wisdom. We do, because most people here are under that age. But what you have here with, with Zechariah and Elizabeth, they were legitimately old. Not Abu Dhabi standards, but for real. They were senior citizens. And so having children was no longer possible. It's just... It's just Physically, biologically impossible for them to have been able to have children. Now, Luke chapter 1 verse 8 also tells us in following that God had chosen Zechariah by casting lots. That was the means that God used. He had chosen Zechariah for a very special task. Remember, he was a priest, so he worked in the temple. But he had a special honor of going into the holy place to offer God incense. Many priests would never get that very special honor. Now, if you remember the temple layout, the most inner place was the most holy place. And no one could go in there unless they would die. The only person allowed to go into the most holy place was the high priest. And even then, only once a year on Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement. And so that, that was the manifestation of God's presence with his people. Now, right outside of that room was the holy place where you had the altar of incense. And so Zechariah as a priest, now he wasn't a high priest, so he wasn't allowed to go into the most holy place, but he could get to the next closest possible place to the presence of God. In fact, that God picked him is saying something. This is a holy man. This man that loves God and is committed to him is walking blamelessly before God. And while he was in the holy place offering incense to God as his act of worship, right there next to the altar of incense, a messenger appears. The angel Gabriel appears. His holy messenger of God comes and he gives a message to Zechariah, the priest. He tells him, that his wife is going to get pregnant and that she will give birth to a son despite how impossible it is with God. Nothing is impossible. And she will give birth to a boy and that will name him John and that he will be a prophet who will prepare the way for the coming Messiah. We read earlier in the worship gathering from Isaiah chapter 40 where there was this promise that one day a prophet will come crying out in the wilderness, preparing the hearts of people for the Messiah. This is John, this boy conceived miraculously. Now remember, Zechariah is a faithful man, and yet this is just too much. This is just impossible. And he says, how shall I know this? How can I know this for sure? He says, for I am an old man, and my wife is old too. We're old. How is this possible? Well, he was doubting God. At that point, this faithful man lost his faith. He doubted God. He doubted the message that came from the Holy One from God. And so what happens? God disciplines Zechariah. He disciplined him 
where he was no longer able to speak. Well, indeed, his wife did get pregnant. And so nine months later, he still can't speak. The boy is born. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the little boy, it was common to name the child at the circumcision, again, on the eighth day. And so everyone there is, is pressing in, saying we should name him Zachariah to honor his father. It was very customary to do that. Well, Elizabeth, the godly, strong woman that she is, she says, no, his name is John. And she says, well, you can't call him John. That name's not in your family. You need to call him Zachariah. And so they're motioning to Zachariah, who can't even speak, and he gets a tablet, and he writes the words, his name is John, showing his faith and his obedience to God. And immediately, God removes that discipline, and he is able to speak. The Spirit of God then fills Zechariah and inspires this priest before God to sing, to sing a powerful, beautiful song, a poem in Luke 1, 67 through 79. Zechariah's first words after not speaking for nearly a year, nine months of not speaking, his first words out of his mouth is praise. He praises God. These are prophetic words inspired by God's Spirit and is revealing who God is. So let's read Luke 1, 67 through 79. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed this people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness, and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Amen. This song is called the Benedictus because that's Latin for the first key word here, blessed, from verse 68. Now the word blessed is an expression of praise or of thanksgiving. So some translations say praise be the Lord because that's what the word blessed here is communicating. And so what we're seeing here is that God desires our worship, that we exist to adore him. And so that well-known Christmas carol, Oh, Come All Ye Faithful, captures our highest calling as humans. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. This is the primary truth from this text. 
The main idea here is that when we worship God, we are fulfilling our highest calling. This is what it is, is when we're worshiping Him, we are fulfilling our highest calling. So we are called by God to do many things. So whether you are a father or a mother or whether you're a child, whether you're a student, whether you're a manager or an employee, whatever roles you have in your life, whatever God has called you to fulfill, understand that all of those roles and all of those callings are under the highest calling, which is to worship God. So everything that you do is under this highest calling. It's all designed to be an expression of our worship to God. And so what we're called to do here is to savor, to taste the goodness of God. We are called to find our identity in him. Like we sung, I'm loved by you. That's who I am. We define who we are in him. We are called to treasure him. We are called to praise him, to find our comfort in him, to wholeheartedly trust him, to rest securely in him, to have your soul satisfied by him, to find your lasting joy and purpose in him. In the word, we're called to worship. Psalm 103, King David cries out, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. So what does that mean? We sing it quite often. Bless the Lord, O my soul. What it is, it's appealing to your deepest inner self, your soul. So appealing, encouraging your deepest inner self to reach up to your highest calling to worship. To have an outpouring of adoration that's directed toward God. And so worship is the act of ascribing worth directly to God. That's what it is. And much like the song of Mary we looked at last week, today, this song of Zechariah leads us to ask a question, a very important question. Why? Why should I? Why should I? Why should you? Why should we worship Jesus? Maybe you're seeking today and you're not so sure about this following Jesus thing, and maybe you've actually wondered that. Why should I bow down to Jesus? Why should I love him? Why should I sacrifice everything for him? Why should I adore Jesus? Just like Thomas, his disciple, after Jesus died, he did not believe that he resurrected, but then when Jesus appeared to Thomas in the flesh, and he touched his hands that were scarred, and he touched the side that was scarred. Thomas cries out, my Lord and my God. And Thomas bows down, and he worships, and Jesus receives that worship. And he says, blessed are you, for you have seen and you believe, but blessed are those who have not seen and believe. Blessed are those who 
worship, who bow down humbly and adore Jesus and sacrifice everything and give it all away to bow down to him. Why? Why would anyone do that? There are three key questions that we see answered in this beautiful poem about worship. Three questions about worship. The first one we're talking about here is why. Why worship God? Well, this text begins with a call to praise. That's what this is the primary truth. It says, this is what we're called to do. It says in verse 68, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Praise be him. Honor him. And the next phrase is for. So praise him for. Praise him because. Praise him for what he has done. And so, and then what you see here in the rest of this section is God giving us reasons, rational reasons, not a blind leap of faith. So if you're here today and you're checking this whole thing out, I'm here to tell you that following Jesus is not a blind leap of faith. It's not. It's rooted in absolute verifiable truth and God here is giving us the reasons why and these verses that call us why we should bow down in humble adoration, verses 68 through 73, describe the why. And it's awe-inspiring. When I was studying it this week, I was just overwhelmed. It just describes the miraculous salvation that God has accomplished. How God has taken sinful people like you and me that we tend to just love ourselves and chase after idols and enjoy evil pleasures. And we who rebel against our loving God and we who hurt and disappoint one another. It's who we are and God has displayed his infinite glory by transforming self-centered, self-worshippers. And he transforms us into white, hot Worshippers of Jesus who joyfully bow down and, and are in awe of his majesty with humble adoration and praising and blessing him. And only God can do that. Only God's spirit can do that miracle. And, and I stand in awe of our God. And as I was meditating on the song of Zechariah, I really did feel just blown away because my... The way I'm wired, my personality is to be very linear. Even the way I preach, I want to say this is the main truth and let's look at this, how it works in our lives. And so ask my wife, I like lists and plans and I want everything very linear. But there are times you read the Bible and God doesn't cooperate. And I'm reading this section and I'm, I'm like hammering at it and trying to say, God, what is the primary theme here? And there isn't just one. And I finally stopped trying to put it in the box and realized that what God is doing here is he's revealing his glory with the rapid fire. And he's mentioning many different ways and different facets of salvation that it's kind of like a diamond that has many different sides. But together, it just shines so brilliantly. And that's what God is doing here in this song of Zechariah, this song of praise. So, and, so he's saying, why? And he says, just look at me and you'll see why you should worship me. Verse 68, he says, God has visited his people. So he starts by saying, why worship me? Because I have visited you. 
To visit means to look after or, or to care for. And so this is language from the Exodus. That's what this is coming from. It says several times in Exodus 3 in chapter 4 that God has visited his people. When they were suffering, languishing in slavery, God saw. He saw their pain and he was moved to save them. And this is pointing to Jesus. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus has visited us to rescue us from our slavery to our sin. And so why worship? Because he's visited us. And it says, verse 68, he visited and redeemed. Again, borrowing from the Exodus. Same language here. To redeem is to pay the redemption price. It's a price that has to be paid to liberate a slave. And so you can't free a slave without first paying the redemption price. And so when guys use the language of redemption and redeem, is describing that a price has to be paid, which is why they sacrificed a lamb and put the blood on top of the doorpost before they were liberated from slavery. A lamb had to die at the Passover. Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb who took our sin and guilt and shame. And so what you're seeing here, this redemption is talking about freedom from sin because Jesus paid the price. Verse 69, he says he's raised a horn of salvation. You're thinking, what do you mean raise a horn? Well, it's just poetic language. A horn on an animal showed its strength. And so a horn was when animal used to defend itself. And so a horn refers to power or strength. And so a horn of salvation refers to a powerful, a mighty salvation. Like we sing, our God is mighty to save. That's what this means, a horn. That God is powerful and Jesus was powerful. He overcame sin and death with his resurrection. So he is powerful. That's why we worship him. Verse 69, he says, in the house of his servant David, Jesus is the long-awaited promised son of David. He's the king, the rightful heir to the throne. So salvation is entering into the kingdom of God. If you're not in God's kingdom, you're not saved. If you don't bow down and submit yourself to King Jesus, you're not a believer. And so salvation is described here as being part of a, a kingdom and joyfully submitting and bowing down to the king. But verse 70, he continues. He says, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old. And so salvation, which you're seeing here, is the promise that a Messiah would die and be resurrected. And it was promised centuries earlier by the mouth of prophets. And so salvation here is a, a promise that was kept. Verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemy. Salvation is being saved from the enemy, from Satan, who will eventually be cast like a fire. But it's much more than just Satan. It's saved from our own sin. And beyond that, it's saved from death. Death is the final enemy. And with his resurrection, Jesus conquered death. 1 Corinthians 15 describes this. It says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God. We have victory over death, victory over sin and Satan. We are victorious. And so salvation here is seen as having victory over the enemy. 
But then verses 72 and 73, it says, to show the mercy promised to our fathers to remember his holy covenant, the oath that we swore. And so God willingly entered into, into a covenant, this relationship with his people. And in the, prom, in, in the process, rather, he made promises to bless his people. And we continually fail to uphold the covenant requirements. And yet God is faithful. And Jesus came to fulfill the covenant on our behalf. Out of mercy and compassion, God kept his word, sent the Messiah to save us, to keep the covenant for us. And so you see here in the Benedictus, this song of praising God for his salvation. And so salvation here is being visited by God. It's being liberated from slavery. It's power over sin. It's being a member of his kingdom. It's a promise that was kept. It's victory over death. It's experiencing mercy. It's having a relationship with God. Can you see the rapid fire? Is the God is saying, this is my salvation. It's so multifaceted. It's so glorious. And God is revealing who he is and what he has done for us. And the whole point of these waves of ways that he saves us is meant to just overwhelm us. And to just fall down in humble, overwhelmed adoration and say, God, you are amazing. And I am so unworthy. Praise you. Blessed be your name. And be so overwhelmed by him that the result is living a life of worship. So God is showing his magnificence with all these different ways that he has saved us. But you know what our problem is? I say our, it, it could be anyone, and maybe someone in this room. The problem for some of you is that you're bored. Honestly, you're bored. You've heard the story of Jesus being born in a stable, and you've heard the story of Jesus dying on the cross for your sins. You've heard this so often, just countless times. Before you were even born, you were already hearing it when you were in the womb. And you, you've been raised in the environment where you've heard this so many times, and yet these words are not penetrating your soul. And you don't actually think about Jesus, maybe on Friday morning a little bit. Even then your mind's on your grocery list, but hopefully not too much when you're hearing God's word. But throughout your day in life, you don't actually think about Jesus, and maybe you are bored with Jesus. You've heard Jesus loves you. You've heard that many times. And yet, those words to you might today seem superficial or just simply religious speak. And Jesus does not actually impact your daily thoughts, desires, words, or actions. And if you're here, and if you can relate what I'm describing. I don't know what the root is. Now there is one. We could sit over coffee and I could ask a lot of questions and if you're honest we could find what that root is. Maybe it's deep pain. Maybe it's deep insecurity or disappointment. Maybe it's an addiction. 
that's just dominating your life and has engulfed you. And maybe you think today that Jesus just doesn't make a difference in your life. Well, I would encourage you to open up to a brother or a sister that you trust and be honest where you're at and find healing. I can tell you this, the bottom line is that if you're in that place today, it's because you are not adoring Jesus. You're not overwhelmed by him. What we've just been hearing for you is like blah, 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 and it's just not going deep enough. And the reason is that you're bowing down before an idol. And the idol is a counterfeit God. It's fake. It looks real. It pretends to be the real thing, but it can't deliver. And idols are just that, counterfeit gods. And they keep us from our first love. You see, you can't hold on to your bitterness. You can't hold on to your anger. You can't hold on to your victim mentality. You, you can't hold on to any of these realities and have Jesus. You can't have both. You, you can't have the presence that permeates in your life of an idol and then also but to have the presence of Jesus in your life. You can't have both. We come back to the key question on why worship God. If there's one theme of this remarkable display of different ways that God is showing his salvation, if there's one theme, I'll say this. Here's the answer. God alone is worthy. That's why. That's why we worship Jesus, because he is worthy. And I pray that you will come to the end of yourself and that you will find mercy, that you will find that Jesus really does love you. This is not just religious speak. This is absolute truth. Jesus loves you, and he is waiting for you. Repent and experience the true joy of his presence, for he is The second key question is, what does it look like? So we're seeing that we're called to praise him. Why? Because he is worthy. What does it look like to worship God? Second key question. Verses 74 through 75 describe why God has miraculously saved us, and he's given us new hearts so that we want to obey him, to enjoy him, to be satisfied in him. And so in doing all of that, these two verses, 74 and 75, are giving us a picture of what it looks like to live a life of worship before God. So he's describing why he has saved us, and so doing is giving us a picture. So we have seen that we're saved, and it says in verse 74, that we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So he saved us so that we will do what? With serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. And so there is the answer to our second question. 
What does it look like to have a life of worshiping God? There's the three key words. Number one is service. Our life has been marked by services, that we might serve him. And so he saved us so that we can serve. We're saved to serve. It's an expression of our worship. So we serve God by serving others. Here's the key. Hear that. We serve God by serving other people. So do you have a desire to serve others? Or are you just self-serving? Do you serve in your home? Do you serve in your church? Do you serve even when you're at work with a joyous heart? Here's the bottom line. We're all made to serve. We will serve. There's no question about that. So you and I will serve because God has made us to serve. So we don't have an option. Sorry. Deal. You're going to serve either yourself or someone or something else. So you will serve that which you worship. Here's the key here is you will serve that which you worship. So whatever you worship, find the greatest value, you're going to serve that, either God or an idol. This, the second picture here, what it looks like, is trust. He says that we must serve him without fear. And so our life should be marked by trust or not living in fear. So you will find your hope and your security in that which you worship. So we've seen here, first of all, that you will serve that which you worship. We see here that you will find your hope and security in that which you worship. You will either turn to an idol for hope and security, or you will find your security in Jesus. But we're going to turn to something. We're going to trust and hope in something. May it be the only one who is trustworthy. That's an expression of our worship. And the last point here on what it looks like is holiness. It says, serve him without fear in holiness. It says, and righteousness, so doing right. And so we are marked by holiness. That, that's the third picture of what it, it looks like. So your character will reflect the character of that which you worship. Hear me. Your character will reflect the character of that which you worship. So if you are bowing down to the idol of approval, your whole life is going to be getting in debt to buy the right clothes, the right car, show off so that you can get the approval. And so your life begins to mirror that. If, if your idol is immorality, then your thoughts, your, your life is going to be marked by that. If your God truly is Jesus, you will begin to reflect his character, which is holy. So whatever you give your heart to, it will then begin to reflect. And so that which we worship is what we will look like. This is not about earning salvation. God's already done that. He's already assured us our salvation. This is simply the overflow of being saved. This is what it looks like. So when we worship God, we're fulfilling our highest calling. Let's wrap it up with number three. Third question. So how? How does God make it possible for us to worship him? How does he make it possible? Because we've already seen that left to ourselves, we'll chase after idols every single time. We'll go our own way and enjoy our own sin. And so how does God make it possible for us to worship 
him. In the last three verses here, Zechariah then begins to speak to his newborn son, and he's prophesying to his son. And again, we talked earlier that Isaiah 40 describes the prophets being fulfilled in him, that he will be a prophet that will proclaim the word of God, call people to repent, prepare their hearts for the Messiah, Jesus. And it says that because of the tender mercy of our God, that he has done this because of the, verse 78, because of the tender mercy. This month, we're celebrating Christmas, how God the Father showed us mercy in sending God the Son to become a human, to live a sinless life, to die for our sins, to be resurrected. And it says in this text, to do what? It says, for the forgiveness of their sins. The forgiveness of our sins. And here, Jesus is called Lord in verse 76. The word used for God in the Old Testament is describing Jesus. And in verse 78, he's referred to as sunrise. This metaphor that Jesus comes to push back the darkness of, of death and lead us to life and peace, shalom with God. And so we worship Jesus because he is God. And so how does God make it possible for us to even worship him? The answer is God sent his Messiah to transform us. Like it says here in this text, in verse 79, that he's come to give light to those who sit in darkness. He has come to transform, take us out of darkness and into his marvelous light to transform our hearts, new birth, new life, so that we become joyful, willing worshipers. Jesus is God. God in the flesh who has come to rescue us. And since Jesus is the Lord, the creator, the redeemer, the sustainer, the healer, the Messiah, the king, he is worthy of our worship. What does your life song sound like because your life is a song what are the lyrics i can assure you that your life is singing a song may our lives be more attuned to jesus this season will we refocus ourselves will you keep reading his word and i don't just mean for two minutes but sit down and read it Meditate, think about it, pray, spend time in his presence. Let the word sink in deep. Experience his presence. That's my heart's desire is that you will have true joy this Christmas. And like the carol says, joy. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing. Let's sing to God because He is worthy. Father, we worship you today, for truly you alone are worthy. We praise your holy name. We are in awe of who you are. We worship you, Jesus, because you are worthy, you are God, and you are our joy. You are our purpose for living. Thank you for your word. I pray that you would help it through your spirit to sink in deep into our hearts and souls. May we have our lives sing a song that is glorious, 
that is obedient to you. And we pray it for your kingdom's sake in the name of Jesus. Amen.